The final deadly sin that we want to explore is the traitor known as apathy. But before we get to today's content, I want to thank those of you who support Time of Grace. By engaging with the many different kinds of Bible content we offer, by telling your friends and relatives about Time of Grace, and by financially supporting the work we do. Thank you from all of us at Time of Grace. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Do you remember back to episode one of this series when we talked about the deadly sin of pride? Pride is an attitude that isn't necessarily a deadly sin. For example, I can have pride in my spouse's generosity or my kids' academic and professional accomplishments. As we had discussed, the attitude of pride exists on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, there is pride that is appropriate and sincere. On the other end of the spectrum, pride is destructive and deadly. It's the same with apathy. Now, apathy may never be considered a positive attitude, but it can at least be a neutral attitude. And then, on the negative end of the spectrum, apathy is a deadly, sinful attitude. Not surprisingly, there are different kinds of apathy. There's physical apathy, emotional apathy, behavioral apathy, and spiritual apathy. And not all are deadly. In today's episode, we're going to explore the one kind of apathy that is always deadly, and that is spiritual apathy. Let's first talk about apathy in general. The word apathy has its origins in the Greek language, the word apathes. In the word apathes, the prefix a means without, and the rest of the word pathos means emotion, feeling, or suffering. Originally in the Greek language, apathes meant freedom from suffering. But hundreds of years ago, when the word was brought into the English language, the meaning shifted from without suffering to without emotion or without feeling. You know, we have quite a number of words in the English language that come from the word pathos. Empathy, sympathy, antipathy, pathetic, and even pathos itself a word that means evoking pity or compassion. So what does apathy look like? Apathy shows up as feelings of indifference, a lack of caring or concern, or a lack of emotion. And just as there are different kinds of apathy, so also there are different degrees of apathy. Emotionally healthy people can experience apathy in everyday tasks and events. For example, not wanting to do chores around the house, 
or putting off getting a task completed at work, or not wanting to attend a social event even though you are pretty much obligated to be there. But apathy can also be experienced as a mental health condition, a serious one. According to mental health professionals, apathy can show up as a symptom of depression. So, apathy can show up in different aspects of our lives and in varying degrees. Can you think of a word in the last 20 years that has captured the emotion of apathy? It's actually become a slang term. It's a term that is used either to poo-poo a statement that someone said, or to express indifference to that statement, or even to express affirmation of the statement. Now, to be honest, I don't hear it used as much today as I did a few years ago, but I think you know what the word is. It's the word whatever. Whatever can affirm what was said, it can express indifference to what was said, or it can express impolite disdain for what was said. So how do you know what the intent was? Well, how the word is spoken can give a hint. It has to do with the person's voice inflection. For example, there's a big difference between saying matter-of-factly, whatever, and whatever. This goes back a while, but in 2010, Marist College did a poll in which the word whatever was voted as the most annoying word in conversation. I'm not surprised. It's a word that can cut off conversation. It's a word that can be offensive at worst and impolite at best. And whatever is a word that can often express apathy. Physical, behavioral, and emotional apathy may at times be annoying, frustrating, or distasteful in everyday life. But when it comes to spiritual apathy, well, then it's deadly. I checked a number of English translations of the Bible and discovered that the word apathy never actually occurs in the Bible, at least not in the translations I checked. I was a bit surprised by that because the examples of spiritual apathy are many and threaded throughout the Bible. Spiritual apathy is one of the most common threads in the Old and New Testaments. The Bible just uses different words to describe spiritual apathy, words that tend to focus on the actions that result from apathy. One such word is forsake or in the past tense, forsook, or as an adjective, forsaken. The Old Testament Hebrew word translated as forsake can also mean to leave, to abandon, to leave behind, or to let go. In the New Testament Greek language, the word translated as forsake can also mean to leave, to abandon, or to let go. So both the Hebrew and Greek words are closely related in meaning. Now, perhaps a couple of examples from both the Old and New Testaments will illustrate what happens when people no longer have any emotion or feeling for the Lord God. 
in other words, when they experience spiritual apathy. Around 1400 BC, Joshua led the Israelites into the land of Canaan, a land that the Lord God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was after the Israelites had experienced years of slavery in Egypt and 40 years of wandering in the Sinai Desert. By the way, why did they wander in the desert for 40 years? Because in their spiritual apathy, they had forsaken the Lord God and did not trust his promise to give them the land. When they finally entered the land, the Lord God told the Israelites to drive out all of the Canaanite people. And why? Well, the Lord told them why. He said, Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Sadly, they failed to do what the Lord commanded. And so we see the consequences of failing to follow the Lord's command unfolding throughout the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges. There was a cycle that was repeated over and over. It went like this. The Israelites would faithfully love and serve the Lord God, but eventually spiritual apathy would cause them to forsake the Lord, and they started worshiping other gods. God would then allow an Israelite enemy to rise up and become a thorn in the side of the Israelites until the Lord God decided to send a judge, a rescuer. When the rescuer had defeated Israel's enemies, there would be peace for years or decades until they once again drifted into spiritual apathy. This cycle would repeat itself throughout the period of the judges, which covered the time period be between about 1200 B.C. and 1020 B.C. Here's one example from the book of Judges that illustrates one of these cycles. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For eighteen years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other, other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. 
Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he, the Lord, could bear Israel's misery no longer. The Lord sent a rescuer by the name of Jephthah, who saved repented Israel. The cycle would begin again. By the way, if you want to learn more about these repeating cycles of Israel's faithfulness turned to faithlessness, check out my podcast series entitled Intersections, Supernatural Occurrences in the Bible. Listen to the episode that covers the Old Testament book of Joshua and Judges. And if you want more examples of spiritual apathy in the Old Testament, just listen to or read the books of First and Second Kings. Most of the kings of Israel and Judah were not faithful to the Lord God. In fact, not one king in the northern kingdom of Israel and only a handful of kings in the southern kingdom of Judah could ever be called faithful. What about in the New Testament? Are there any examples of spiritual apathy? What comes to my mind are the seven letters to the seven churches found in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. These were letters from the Lord Jesus himself, written down by the Apostle John and intended for the spiritual leaders of seven churches in Western Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. In several of the letters, Jesus points out the church's spiritual apathy. These churches were either following false prophets or embracing false teaching. The letters from Jesus called for repentance and encouraged faithfulness despite persecution and trials. In the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus addressed their spiritual apathy this way. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus said, There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. More spiritual apathy. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus wrote, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. More spiritual apathy. To the church in Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Spiritual apathy 
that was leading them to spiritual death. And finally, to the church in Laodicea. Jesus wrote, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. These seven churches were actual churches in the first century. The challenges they faced and the spiritual apathy that plagued them reminds us that the Christian church will always have to be aware of the deadly danger of spiritual apathy and to avoid it. Here's a question for you to ponder. What might be some contributing factors that can lead a follower of Jesus down a path towards spiritual apathy? One that comes to my mind is inattention to what keeps us connected to Jesus, to what strengthens our faith. And what is that? Being in the Word of God, the Bible, regularly, spending time in worship, or studying the Word in small groups, and receiving the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. You see, a lack of attention to God's truth can lead to spiritual apathy. Another contributing factor is unrepentant sin. Remember King David? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, who then became pregnant, and then David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered in order to cover up his first sin. In Psalm 32, David recounted his spiritual apathy due to his unrepentant sin. Just listen to how he puts it. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. A third factor that may be contributing to spiritual apathy is when we fill our minds or fix our eyes on things that are inconsequential. For example, how many likes, views, retweets, or comments I have on my social media accounts or trying to be popular with the right crowd, or putting my faith in what professional athletes say, or politicians promise, or Hollywood actors promote. You know, the Apostle Paul had a better idea. He wrote to the Colossians, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So how does one avoid the path to spiritual apathy in the first place? What does the opposite of spiritual apathy look like? Well, there's a word in the Bible that occurs more than 30 times that gives us a key to avoiding spiritual apathy. The word is zeal or zealous. Zeal can be defined as focused, passionate desire. 
zeal is characterized by commitment, perseverance, devotion, and sincerity. Now, I should point out, however, that zeal can either be positive or negative. The prophet Elijah was zealous for the Lord God, Yahweh, when he confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus was zealous for his Father's glory when he overturned the money changers' tables in the temple because of their greed. And yet Saul, before his conversion, was described as zealous in his persecution of the followers of Jesus. He even gave his approval to the death of Stephen. Obviously, we, we want to have a positive, focused, passionate desire for our God and for God's people. I should also mention that the Hebrew and Greek words translated as zealous are closely related to the word jealous. Now, we tend to think of being jealous as a negative, but it too can be a positive. In the Bible, Yahweh described himself as a jealous God. He said, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. As a jealous God, he wants the glory and praise that is due to him. And as a jealous God, he demonstrated a zeal for finding a solution to Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. That solution was Jesus' atoning life, death, and resurrection. It's a solution everyone needs to know about. One of my favorite chapters in the New Testament puts zeal into down-to-earth practical terms. Remember, zeal is a focused, passionate desire. The section is from Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, you'll make him uncomfortable. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul's words describe someone who is not struggling with spiritual apathy, but rather someone who loves Jesus and who loves people. Traitors, more than just the seven deadly sins, they're attitudes that can betray our relationship with our God, with others, and with ourselves. Well, this wraps up our series on traitors. In our next episode, we'll, we will be continuing with a past series called True Crimes, Bible Edition. This has been a very popular series, so we're going to keep it going. We'll investigate 10 more crimes in the Bible, how God responded to those crimes, and what we can learn from them. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.